Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now pray with me, friends. Lord God, as we open your word today and we tell your story, I pray that you will be magnified and you'll do great work in our hearts for your glory. As we sang, speak, O Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you can be seated. So, before the beginning, God had a plan. The persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God, promised one another to save a people for the glory of God. The Father elected a people to redemption. The Son would come and accomplish that redemption. The Spirit would apply that redemption. And some people call this the covenant of redemption. Or, who's the nerd in here? What is it in Latin? Oh, no nerds. Pactum salutis. I knew it was coming. (laughs) Thank you. And now we know. More than a plan, though. This is a promise that had to be carried out in history. So God created everything. God set the first man up in a special place and promised him life and offspring and blessing if only he would obey the one singular command of God. By the way, how many of you would like it if you had only one rule you had to follow? Sounds better than the tax code, doesn't it? But humanity rebelled against God. They failed to accomplish the simple task of not eating the fruit of the tree that gave the knowledge of evil. So Adam, as the leader, as the representative, as the federal head of all mankind, broke the covenant that God made with him and plunged the world into hardship. Now God could, at that moment, have simply chosen to destroy the world. But God was patient. God would fulfill his plan to redeem a people for himself. God promised right consequences for man's rebellion, but into those consequences... Even as he gave those consequences, God wove his promise of someone who would come into the world, who would crush the devil and set right what was broken in man's fall. God said to the devil, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, from the moment of that promise, all of creation began to await the arrival of the promised one. This sounds just like the Advent reading these guys did for us, doesn't it? We know the one to come is going to be a man, a genuine human being, descended from the woman. He will overcome the devil. He will overcome the darkness the devil caused. And that promise hints to us that he is going to set things right and bring about the accomplishment of God's eternal plan, God's covenant of redemption, the Pactum Salutis. Well, God was merciful to the man and the woman when they believed his promise. He clothed them. He gave them offspring. He kept them alive so that the human race might continue on. 
But none of the children of Adam and Eve were that promised one to come. Instead, the children of Adam and Eve, they got so corrupted by their sin that they brought about the destruction of the entire world. This destruction could, by the way, have threatened God's plan, except for the fact that God would never let his plan fail. So God showed mercy to a man named Noah. And Noah built an ark. And he brought animals and his own family on board. And he rode out the global flood of Genesis 6, 7, and 8. All breathing things outside the ark died. But God preserved one family. And in doing so, preserved his promise. And God continued his covenant with humanity through Noah. Mankind is still required to fulfill God's standards perfectly, and humanity is still utterly unable to meet that obligation. Thus, humanity is not at all able to fix the world ourselves. We're not able to save our own souls. But God will never again wipe out humanity with a flood. Instead, God's going to keep the earth spinning until he fulfills all of his promises. Now, Look at Genesis 9, if you're turning. One might wonder if Noah might be the promised one. The answer is no. Look at Genesis 9, 20 and 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Well, you guys remember Adam in the garden, right? First man, he rebelled with fruit in a garden and discovered himself to be naked. Noah proves he's not the promised one. He's not the one who will fulfill God's standard of perfection. Instead, like Adam, Noah failed with fruit in a vineyard, exposing his nakedness. Noah is not the promised one. But the promise of God is still alive. It's contained in Noah's family. Well, when God dried the earth after the flood, he gave Noah commands that were very similar to the commands to God's call to Adam. Fulfill the earth, spread out all over the globe. But the people of the world after Noah did not want to obey that command of God. Instead, they gathered together. They clustered together at Babel. And they worked to build a tower for their own glory. That was such an act of rebellion that it could have drawn down the wrath of God on humanity again. But God had promised he would not flood and destroy the earth a second time. God would preserve creation, keep the world spinning until the day when God's entire plan and promises are fulfilled. So God, instead of killing everybody, scattered the people from Babel, confused their languages, and he created the concept of different nations. Before that time, there was only one language and one people group. Now, there are many languages and many people groups. And here's the question. From which of those nations... Would God bring the promised one? That's where we pick up our continuing walk through the Bible's grand story. The scriptures that are going to most relate to God's covenant with Abraham are found in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. We might even stop at 18 if we get a minute. So go ahead and turn to Genesis 12. 
before we read anything in this chapter, I'm going to let you know what to expect. You guys know when I preach, I don't normally give you the points and the thoughts ahead of time. I make you find them along the way. But today, I'm going to tell you some things you can write down. I want to let you know what to expect. I want us to see the four bold promises that God makes to Abraham in this covenant. And I want us to see the two different natures of the Abrahamic covenant. So if you're taking notes, get ready to write a few things down that we're going to then see in the key scriptures that carry forward God's glorious plan of redemption. The bold promises and the two natures of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant God makes with Abraham makes four bold promises. So think of the letters in the word bold, B-O-L-D. Blessing, offspring, land, and dominion. Now you guys know I actually went to a Baptist seminary, don't you? I don't do this very often, so don't judge me, doggone it. Blessing, offspring, land, and dominion. Those are promised to Abraham, and we'll see those promises repeated all throughout the time when God repeats and carries forward his covenant that he will make with Abraham. And the covenant with Abraham is a covenant with a dual nature. As you look at this covenant, you're going to find that on the one hand, it is a conditional covenant, meaning it requires obedience if you're going to receive its blessings. On the other hand, on another nature of the covenant, it is unconditional, meaning that God promises to make it happen no matter what. On the one hand, it's physical. It focuses on the offspring of Abraham as a singular nation and on the land of Canaan quite literally. But on the other hand, it's about the spiritual children of Abraham, spiritual salvation for people from all nations and over the whole world. On the one hand, it's about works. On the other hand, it's about grace. And that's why I tell you that it's a covenant with a dual nature. And I will say to you as an aside that missing the fact that this covenant has a dual nature is what causes some entire groups of Christians to misunderstand the covenant structure of the Bible. So this is not a small thing. So now let's look to Genesis 12. In the days when Abraham was still called Abram. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, And your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. By the way, that is one of the most important passages in the Bible. So don't lose that one, okay? Sometime after Babel, God particularly called a man named Abram. Abram was to leave his land. He was to leave behind his idol-worshipping family. He was probably some moon-worshipping Iraqi, if you really want to know. And God was told Abram, get up and go to a place I will show you. Well, God promised to bless Abram and build a great nation out of Abram. And God would bring a blessing into the entire world, all nations, through Abram. Look down at verse 7, you see, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he's 75 years old, 
And Abram takes his family. He leaves Haran. He moves to Canaan. And God promised Abram he would give his offspring that land of Canaan. In response to God's promise, Abram worships. So here you see, if you're listening for them, three of the four bold promises. Blessing, offspring, and land are all promised here by God. God's going to bless Abram. How many times do you read bless in verses uh, 1 through 3? A lot. He's going to give him offspring, descendants, and he's going to give his descendants that land of Canaan. We also see hints even here of the two natures of this relationship. Conditionally, if Abram wants the promise, what does he have to do? He's got to get up and go. If Abram stays in Haran, he doesn't get it. He's got to go where God commands. But at the same time, if you read this, God says, I am going to bless the nations through you. And there appears to be nothing conditional attached to that promise. Now turn to Genesis 15. God has promised Abram, you're going to have offspring. Well, it's now been several years since Genesis 12. And Abram and his wife have been unable to have any children. Look at Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. By the way, verse 6, one of the most important verses in the Bible. Don't lose that one either. Abram, and I think somewhat understandably, do you guys have any sympathy for Abram's question here? He's 80-something he's for heaven's sake. I mean, goodness, I kind of felt bad for Noah being on the ark with his family for a whole year. Abram, my goodness, he's... He's got questions for God about the promises made in chapter 12. Abram was wealthy. He was successful. He was in the land, but he had no kids. The promise of offspring did not look like it was about to go, about to be fulfilled. But God reiterated his promise. Abram will have a son. Abram will father a nation. And then in a gorgeous scene, God says to Abram, look up at the stars in the night sky. Your descendants, Abram, are going to be as uncountable for you as those stars are uncountable for you. And now look at that, verse 6. Abram simply believed God. And God counted Abram's faith, his belief, as righteousness. In case you don't know, that is a lovely reminder that anyone who has ever been saved by God, forgiven of their sins, redeemed, 
You've been redeemed not because of your goodness. Nobody has ever been redeemed because of their goodness or because of their participation in religious activities. Certainly not for lighting candles. Those who are redeemed are redeemed simply because they have believed God. All who are saved are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone. Well, in this chapter, if we were to summarize it, verses 7 to 16, God lays out a little covenant ceremony in front of Abram. God identifies himself and reminds Abram of the relationship that already exists between them. The Lord is the God who called him out from among his people and, and promised him blessing, offspring, and a new land. Abram just had God reaffirm the, the promise of offspring. He personally granted Abram righteousness, blessing, So Abram asked God, how can I know I'm going to get the land? God commanded Abram, take a bunch of animals, kill them, cut them in half. Does that sound weird to you? It's odd. It certainly would not have sounded strange to Abram, though. See, back in his day, if somebody wanted to ratify a covenant in a formal way, Sometimes they really would sacrifice animals, cut them in half, and then they would walk between the divided pieces. And that would be a way that each of the parties to the covenant would bind himself to the covenant stipulations. It was a person saying, may what has been done to these animals be done to me if I should break my part of the covenant. I'm not kidding you. I had a seminary professor say, it's somebody saying, if I break my word, I'm dead meat. (laughs) In fact, this practice gives rise to the Hebrew expression that's used for making a covenant. Because in Hebrew, when someone wants to start a new covenant, they would say that they cut a covenant. Well, once the animals are laid out, God, again, promises Abram, you're going to have offspring. God tells Abram, your offspring are going to be away from the land of Canaan for four centuries, but they're going to come back when God's timing and purposes were just right. It's a guarantee from God. And then look at verses 17 and 18. This is important. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So here in a little turn of events, God doesn't even allow Abram to pass through the animal parts. No, what God covenants with Abram here is unilateral. God is going to give Abram offspring, and these offspring are going to go into the land of Canaan and possess it, and God personally guarantees it. God passing through the animal parts is God promising he would destroy himself if he failed to accomplish that plan. And of course we know God could not do that because God cannot change and God cannot fail. So twice now, we've seen God covenant with Abram to give him blessing, offspring, and a land. We've seen that Abram's true relationship with God, his spiritual relationship with God, his righteousness in the sight of God is established by faith, not through Abram's actions. And I will tell you that it's a good thing 
It's a good thing that God personally, unilaterally, unconditionally guaranteed that Abram would have offspring. It's a good thing that it wasn't based on Abram being a good boy and doing right stuff because in the next chapter, Abram and his wife get a plan. They take matters into their own hands. Instead of believing God that they were going to have a son just like God promised, Abram's wife has him produce a child with her servant Hagar. By the way, not a good thing for most marriages. God tells Abram when that child is born, this is not the child of the promise. He will not carry the line of promise. Now go to chapter 17. And we're going to get more clarity on the covenant God made with Abram. Genesis 17 verses 1 through 8 is where we're going to pick up the story. When Abram was, how old? 99. Just pay attention to that one, all right? When Abram was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So when God first called Abram from his home, he offered him, promised him blessing, offspring, a land. Abram was 75 years old. Now he's 99. The only child he's had so far is Ishmael, a son God has guaranteed will not have anything to do with the ultimate promise of God. And here in chapter 17, God returns to his covenant dealings with Abraham. He establishes his covenant. He's not making a new covenant here. This is not another covenant with Abram. God is reiterating the covenant relationship that he has with Abram, and he's bringing it forward. God begins the formal discussion by identifying himself as God Almighty. That's the powerful God who can do anything he wants. This is the God who called Abram. Notice from the end of verse 1 there to the beginning of verse 2. For the first time since chapter 12, Abram has something he has to do for his part of the covenant. God says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. You know, back in the garden, God was in a relationship with Adam. And Adam was allowed to receive God's blessing if only Adam would obey. And Adam would be blessed. He could be fruitful. He could multiply. He could have the earth. Here we see something of that covenant with the first man. 
what some people call the covenant of works, it's still kind of woven into the Abraham covenant. Abram, Abraham is going to play a sort of Adam role. He will obey for blessing. In verse for 3, Abram fell on his, fell on his face. He, he worships God. He's submitting to the will of God. Whatever is required of him here, he's saying, I agree, I'm willing, I'll come along. Verse 4, God declares that his covenant is with Abram. There's a relationship, a formal relationship of blessing. And then God says, Abram, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. In fact, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which is a name that means the father of nations. Then at the end of verse 6, God promises that kings will come from Abraham's line. Do you guys remember that I told you there were four bold promises? Blessing and what? And then, what's the last one? Dominion. Blessing, offspring, land, dominion. Well, this is what I mean by adding the dominion element. Kings are going to come. God promises that this nation that's going to come from Abraham will be a kingdom, a dominion. Then in verse 7, God promises to have a close relationship with Abraham's nation, a blessed relationship. Verse 8, God promises Abraham's offspring, the land. So whatever's going on here, it's the very same bold promises that I've already mentioned. Blessing, offspring, land, dominion. Now, keep going, 9 and following, 9 to 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you... You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout the generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. Here we see that the covenant God made with Abraham contains a sign requirement. All of the ones who are going to participate in the promise of blessing, offspring, land, and dominion are to have a mark in their flesh, circumcision. And that act, the cutting away of delicate skin, is something that will set Abraham and his family apart from the people who lived around them. The sign would remind the people in Abraham's family that their offspring are the blessing of God. And in those offspring is going to come a blessing for the world. Verse 14, there is a covenant sanction for anybody who refuses to obey the command of God. Any male in Abraham's household or family line who would refuse circumcision will be cut off from his people. Do you get the play on words in the Bible here? The one who will not cut off the foreskin will himself be cut off. There's a requirement of obedience for participation in the covenant. 
So the covenant of circumcision is part of the covenant with Abraham, Abraham as a reminder of the earthly works-based nature that is present in the Abrahamic covenant. There is a second nature to the Abrahamic covenant, a spiritual grace-based guaranteed nature of the covenant as well, but physical circumcision does not aim at or depict it. Circumcision symbolizes the requirement of obedience to law for earthly blessing. How do I know? Galatians 5.3 in the New Testament says, I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Circumcision under Abraham is tied to an agreement to keep God's law. Later in Scripture, God's going to point to a spiritual circumcision as well, something like it, circumcision of the heart. And that aims at the spiritual promise of salvation. Those who are saved are changed. Their dead hearts are cut away and replaced with living ones. We see evidence of that in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So what we see here, friends, and I don't want you to miss this, is that in this covenant, there is physical and there is spiritual. There is works. There is grace. There are two sides to this covenant. Later in chapter 17, Abraham and God have a little conversation about Abraham's son Ishmael, born to Hagar. God is again clear, telling Abraham, I'm establishing, I'm carrying forward the covenant through Isaac, the son who's about to be born to Sarah, I am not carrying my covenant forward through Ishmael. And God reiterates the promises again of blessing, offspring, land, and dominion in that section. And then at age 99, Abraham is circumcised as a sign of his willingness to obey God in his covenant. And I would argue that is commitment. Now, look quickly, chapter 18. I think we got time to do this. Chapter 18. I want to show you another evidence of the dual nature of the Abrahamic covenant in a statement that God makes. Look at 18 verses 17 to 19. My whole point here is I just want to give you another proof, another evidence that there are two things happening in this covenant. Because you miss that, you're going to miss a lot of Bible. Genesis 18, 17 to 19. Look at this. The Lord said... Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Let me ask you before I even explain it. Can you feel the two natures of the covenant in those verses? Do you see the works and the grace there? God's promise is absolutely certain on the one hand. Abram will surely become a great, mighty nation. Verse 18. It's unilateral. It's God's promise. It's going to happen. But verse 19 says the people have to obey if they actually want to receive it. The covenant has both conditional and unconditional elements. Two parts. 
Now, let's move forward. When Abraham is a hundred years old, Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. And for the coming years, if you read those chapters, sometimes Abraham believes and he follows God very faithfully. Sometimes he doubts and he fails. Can any of you identify with that? But then Genesis 22 comes along and we see Abraham truly believe God right down to his very core. You guys know the story in Genesis 22? I think it's familiar. God calls Abraham, I want you to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And Abraham has so much trust in God that he is willing, if God commands, to kill him. If you really want it, I'll do it, Lord. In fact, Abraham believes that if he does have to kill Isaac, God will raise Isaac from the dead because God will always keep his promises. You can see Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19 for that. But before Abraham lowers the knife, God stops Abraham. He prevents him from slaying his teenage son. And then I want you to see the covenant reference that comes at the end of this scene. Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So because of Abraham's obedience, God will surely grant him blessing, offspring, offspring, land, and dominion. And there's an even bigger blessing that's going to come through this blessing. Something about the offspring God is going to give Abraham is going to bless the entire world, all nations, not just Abraham's family. Now, how many of you are still awake? Okay, I'm so glad. That was a long story for me to tell you, wasn't it? If we tie together what we've seen in the life of Abraham... We see the promise of God. Abraham's family is promised blessing, offspring, land, and dominion. But there are two natures to the covenant with Abraham. There is a conditional and an unconditional, a works and a grace, an earthly and a spiritual nature. How can this all be true? The people born into Abraham's family have to obey God's covenant stipulations if they want to have the physical promises of God's blessing, increased offspring, the promised land, and the right to rule it. If they fail to obey God, if they fail to circumcise their children, later in Deuteronomy, if they fail to obey the law of God, they will be cut off from their people, they will lose personal blessing, they will lose the right to the promised land, they will forfeit the protections God has promised them. We'll learn about that when we look at the covenant at Mount Sinai with Moses. 
That sounds like a pretty works-based conditional covenant, doesn't it? But God is also working a bigger plan through Abraham, a spiritual plan, a global plan, and this plan is something that God will guarantee. Even if the people descended from Abraham rebelled, and oh, let me tell you, they will. God will ensure that he will keep enough of them around so that the promise that he made to bless all the nations of the world will in fact come to pass. The unconditional part of the covenant is God swearing by himself that he will make sure this promise is fulfilled and he will use Abraham's family to do so. Now, you want to know why all this matters? Especially if you're new here, you might be thinking, why in the world do I care about that story? Because every bit of it is how God points us to Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and 29. Verse 16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 29 says, And if you are Christ, let me just stop here. How many of you would say you are Christ's? You belong to Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God's promise to Abraham had to do with the building up of a people, a nation. And it was all going to come from Abraham's line. But in a greater sense, in a spiritual sense, God's promise to Abraham was laying the groundwork for the one true offspring of Abraham who would enter the world and it would be the blessing of God on all nations. Abraham's family, like a pregnant woman, is carrying the promised one until Jesus is born. Or again, as I've told some of my men at Bible studies in my dangerous illustration, they're like the Amazon box. What you want is inside. But that box is going to be kept whole to the package is delivered. When Abraham's family disobeys God, what's going to happen? They will suffer the judgment of God. But God will preserve that family alive until the promised one arrives and God guarantees that arrival. And guess what, guys? You know who the real recipient of the bold promises is? It's Jesus. How do I know? If I asked you, who is the true blessed one? Who is it? Who is it? Okay. Who is the true, the one true offspring of Abraham? Jesus brings to himself people from all nations and he makes all those who are genuinely saved the offspring of Abraham too. In him. The true children of God are children of Abraham through Jesus. Jesus has a land. But guess what? It's not merely Canaan. Jesus is not limited to Canaan. You know that, right? He gets the whole world, the whole universe. He made it. He might as well have it, right? 
And let me ask you, who has the ultimate and final dominion as King of kings and Lord of lords? Jesus. So if all this seems to you like an interesting story, but maybe not relevant to you, I want to ask this question of you. Are you under the eternal blessing of God? If you want to be under the eternal blessing of God, if you want to be forgiven, if you want spiritual life, if you want hope forever, if you want a promise of God that does not depend on whether you are good enough to make it because none of us are good enough to make it, but instead if you want a promise of God that is absolutely guaranteed, you've got to be in the family of God. And that has nothing to do with what color your skin is. It has nothing to do with your, with your 23andMe DNA profile. It has nothing to do with your heritage, with your lineage. It has everything to do with your relationship to the one offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. Jesus brought blessing to all nations on earth. And if you want to be under the grace of God and not cut off in judgment, you must trust Jesus. Turn away from your sin and be saved. If you want to know more about that, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders. Come talk to any Christian at the church. We would love, love to help you get to know Jesus. And Christians, as we wrap up, and I feel so silly wrapping up because the story's not over yet. I want simply to ask you to see the grand faithfulness of God. God made a promise in the garden that he would send someone into the world who would accomplish his plan of redemption. Millennia went by as God continued to make that promise and keep that promise alive. And God swore he would bring that promise to pass through a descendant of Abraham. And all the rest of the Old Testament is God continuing to make the promise of the Savior to come. And then it's God moving heaven and earth to fulfill that promise. And get this, Christians, with us starting to sing Christmas songs, With the birth of Jesus, that promise of God began to truly be fulfilled. With Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, even with his ascension to heaven, we experience the promise of God. And Jesus has also promised he will return. And when he returns, the promise of God will be absolutely, perfectly unquestionably fulfilled. You want to see blessing, offspring, land, and dominion taken care of? Wait till Jesus comes back. As we walk into the Christmas season, may we celebrate God's great faithfulness more and more as we watch the light of the coming of Christ grow brighter and brighter and brighter. Let's pray, friends. Lord, you are good. Thank you for your promises. I pray, Lord, that now, as we think about it, as we sing about it, as we, as we just try to ponder the depth of these truths in our mind, Lord, would you be gracious enough to us that we would love Jesus well, that we would know him more.
If there's anybody here who does not know Jesus, I pray that this is not just a big, long story that I told, but instead a genuine pointer to the hope for their soul. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.